For many of us more unfamiliar with the intricacies of American culture, the southern state of Louisiana, embedded in the deep south region of the US, is most likely associated with its vibrant music scenes, the now abandoned Six Flags theme park in New Orleans, and elaborate homes that were formerly used as rice, cotton, and sugar plantations. But as with all places, there exists a darker underbelly to the melting pot state. Louisiana led the way by a considerable margin with the highest state murder rates in the nation for 29 straight years, from 1989 to 2017. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we will be exploring just three of Louisiana's unsolved homicide cases. Thomas Hottard and Audrey Moat. 46-year-old Thomas Hottard was a married man native to Louisiana in 1956, who was also maintaining a relationship with a 31-year-old woman named Audrey Moat. Audrey, a divorced single mother of three from Baton Rouge, had met her lover at a local chemical company where they both worked in 1952. Their blossoming romance, which ensued soon after, was a well-kept secret from those around them, including their colleagues. While Audrey included Thomas in her social life, he was always introduced as a friend. In 1955, Audrey went to live in St. Louis for five months to recover from a nervous breakdown. She returned home with a baby girl whose parents didn't want her, but it was uncovered that Thomas had sponsored the adoption and allowed Audrey to use his surname on the paperwork, leading many online sleuths to speculate that he was the child's father. Audrey's other two children were fathered by her ex-husband. The couple regularly met up on Saturdays, where they both would tell the same lie to their families, which was that they simply had to go into work. This was the case on Saturday the 24th of November, 1956. It should have been like any other meetup, as the pair met around 7.30am and drove to a secluded lover's lane. A father and son spotted Audrey and Thomas around 9am, and unfortunately, they were also the ones to discover the grisly murder scene the following morning. Thomas Hottard had been shot once in the head with a 16-gauge shotgun, point-blank through a side window. Initially, authorities speculated that Audrey was the murderer and had killed her boyfriend in a fit of rage that had followed from a lover's spat. However, this opinion changed when, 50 feet away, bare footprints were spotted on the ground, followed by boot prints, as if Audrey was being chased. Her clothing was found in the car, and personal items were discovered on the ground beside the vehicle. The keys were still in the ignition, but another set of car keys were found where the footprints were located. The footprints, suspected as being Audrey's, ended at a single motorbike track on a road leading to the highway. Audrey's purse was never recovered, and later on, her car was found at the restaurant where the couple had met. Police realized that the car keys found on the ground at the crime scene belonged to Audrey's car. Strangely, it was discovered that just weeks before the murder, Audrey told her mother that she should take the kids and leave the area, but she did not explain why. 
Two weeks following the crime, on December 6th, Audrey's former mother-in-law got a phone call. The voice on the end of the line said they were in trouble and needed help. Also around this time, a waitress told police that she'd seen a disheveled woman resembling Audrey at a restaurant. This was the last reported sighting of the 31-year-old. An early suspect in the murder of Thomas Hottard was a 41-year-old man by the name of Edmund Dewey. He shot and wounded a woman during a robbery attempt in New Orleans and was linked to the case by a purse that was found in his car which resembled the description of Audrey's one. After being given a police-administered quote-unquote truth serum, Dewey confessed to killing the pair and burying Audrey's body in a dump. However, it was not found there when police searched. It is unknown if Dewey is still considered a suspect, but it seems unlikely since very little seemed to tie him to the case and confessions under the influence of police-administered chemicals and drugs are often inaccurate and untrue. Inquiries into the murder of Thomas and the disappearance of Audrey quickly died out. The case came to a standstill entirely until 1980, when a dying man named Ernest Acosta indicated to his family that his common-law wife, Caroline Schlesser, who died in 1979, killed both Audrey and Thomas. Acosta claimed that he then helped to dispose of Audrey's body. However, Acosta's daughter, Marville, suspects that her father was involved, not Schlesser. And there are some unusual discrepancies in his confession. Acosta and Schlesser lived on the edge of a swamp, less than a mile from the crime scene, and both had bad reputations. Schlesser was known to sleep with a shotgun, while Acosta shot at anyone who came too close to the property. Acosta's daughter claimed Henry and Audrey came to the house at least twice and met with Schlesser. Acosta claimed that they knew something about her, but it is unknown what. Supposedly, Audrey was related to Schlesser, but again, it's unknown how. According to Acosta, on November 24th, 1956, he was visiting his kids but received a phone call from Schlesser that caused him to rush home immediately. He claimed that the murders took place in their home and that he and a neighbor moved Thomas's body back into the car. However, it seems questionable that a neighbor would be happy to be involved in the cover-up of a murder. Allegedly, Audrey's body was tied to a Civil War cannon and was dumped in the nearby swamp. Acosta's daughter, Marvel, has told of her suspicions about the confession, especially since the evidence showed that Thomas was murdered in his car. Marvel and a recent case investigator suspect that Acosta was the murderer and that after watching the pair together in the car, he decided to attack them and sexually assault Audrey. The only other logical suspects in the gruesome case would be Thomas's wife, who reportedly knew and openly disliked Audrey. Apparently, during a work strike, Thomas had allowed Audrey to stay with his family in his home, and she would constantly attempt to be around Thomas and cause dissension between the married couple. However, Thomas's wife claimed that she was unaware of the affair and was therefore never truly considered a suspect. Audrey's daughter, Decky, was desperate to find her mother's remains and searched for answers up until she passed away in January of 2019 from an aggressive cancer. She gave her DNA to police before her death in the hopes that one day her mother's remains would be identified. To this very day, Audrey's remains have never been recovered. 
In February of 2011, human remains were found that were suspected to be Audrey's, but this lead does not seem to have panned out, so it's likely they were not the missing mother of three's bones after all. Now, almost 70 years since her disappearance, it seems unlikely that Audrey's body will ever be found. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Carol Cole. Previously known as the Boza Doe, Carol Cole spent most of her death being an unidentified Jane Doe. Oddly, Carol had been ruled out as being the identity of the Jane Doe, but it is unknown why. Carol was just 17 years old when her body was found in 1981 in the Boza Parish, Louisiana. She had been concealed in a heavily wooded area. She was found wearing jeans, a white long-sleeved top with pink, yellow and blue stripes, a beige hooded sweater, white socks with blue and yellow streaks, white boxer briefs and bra, and size 7 shoes. One of the most identifying accessories she wore was a leather belt with the buckle reading Buffalo Nickel. Carol's cause of death was established as stabbing, and her body had been punctured nine times. The murder weapon was found in the soil near her remains. She was killed around four to seven weeks before her body was discovered, and she was in an unrecognizable state of decomposition, although authorities did manage to create a description of what the victim may have looked like. Carol, known as the Boza Doe at the time, was described as being white with possible Native American ancestry, five foot five to five foot six, and 125 to 160 pounds with blonde, straight, shoulder-length hair. It was also discovered that her braces had been removed, but not professionally. Although Carol's sister, Linda Jeannie Phelps, did not give up looking for her, it was a 911 operator who made the connection between Carol Cole and the Boza Doe. On February 6th, 2015, the 911 operator who'd seen Boza Doe's image as well as Carol's on a Facebook page reported the likeness to the police. The match was solidified via DNA, and Carol was reburied in Maple Grove Cemetery in Comstock, Michigan, on June 18th, 2015. Carol Cole was native to Michigan and had been missing from San Antonio, Texas since 1980. She and her sister Jeannie had lived with their grandmother in Michigan after their parents had divorced, but in 1979, Carol decided to accompany her mother to Texas and kept in contact with her sister via telephone and handwritten letters. It seemed that Carol had a history of running away, as when her mother placed her in a girl's home run by the Palmer Drug Abuse Program in May of 1980, she had left of her own volition by October that same year. The phone calls and letters that her family had been receiving stopped in December of 1980. 
Her grandmother traced a place she'd stayed at to Shreveport, Louisiana. Carol had reportedly resided here for a short time after leaving the PDAP. The residents of the home told Carol's grandmother that she'd left to attend a party and never returned. It's possible that after this time, Carol had spent a period of her life at a religious institution named the New Bethany School for Girls in Arcadia, Louisiana. An image taken around the time of her disappearance showed a group of girls from the school sitting on pews, and Jeannie thought that one of them resembled Carol. Investigators followed this lead, but it resulted in no new information other than that a woman claimed to have spent time with a girl like Carol, but had forgotten her name. Some believe the shoes and style of clothing that she was found in reflected the dress code set in place by the New Bethany School for Girls. It's also noted that Carol had broken the braces from her teeth before she disappeared. This lined up well with the Boza Doe's orthodontics. Jeannie had also reported her sister missing, suspecting foul play once the communication between them abruptly halted. She and a childhood friend of Carol's had relentlessly searched for the missing girl for years, even listing her on Facebook and Craigslist to garner some awareness for the case. And, as we know, it was this that led the 911 dispatcher to come across the striking resemblance between the Boza Doe and Carol. The 17-year-old's grandmother searched for her granddaughter tirelessly too, but passed away before this connection was made. A man named Henry Lee Lucas, a serial killer, confessed to the murder of Carol Cole and that of other unidentified victims. However, his confession is not deemed as credible by authorities. He was in Florida at the time of Carol's demise. The strongest suspect in the case of Carol Cole is a man named John Chesson, whose children discovered the body in 1981. His daughter, Frances Oquan, was the one to point the finger. According to Francis, Chesson had taken the children hunting for the first time that day to establish his innocence by finding the victim's body and reporting it. Reportedly, Chesson had instructed the children to walk in a certain direction, watching them like he was waiting for something. Francis described her father as abusive and claimed that a young hitchhiker he'd brought home was Carol. Chesson had been convicted for the murder of his estranged wife's former mother-in-law in 1997 and died in prison in 2016. Francis's brother committed suicide in 2008. Investigators working on the case of Carol Cole interviewed the widow of Francis's brother as well as Chesson, who remained a person of interest up until his death. The lead investigator on the case asked Francis to show her where her father picked up the girl who was possibly Carol Cole and was taken to one of the locations where Carol had last made a call to Michigan from. Francis did not know this prior to showing the investigator the location. The only other theory in the case was brought up by Jeannie, who claimed that Carol had mentioned a boyfriend who mistreated her in one of her letters. However, this lead does not seem to have been followed up or perhaps led nowhere. The New Bethany School for Girls was closed down in 2001 after being the site of multiple sexual abuse allegations. The founder died in February 2015, aged 82. The identity of the murderer of Carol Cole remains unknown, and her sister still seeks justice. The Jeff Davis Eight. 
The Jeff Davis Eight, also called the Jennings Eight, refers to the unsolved murder cases of women killed in Jefferson Davis Parish, Louisiana. Between 2005 to 2009, eight women involved in drugs or prostitution wound up dead, their bodies dumped in swamps and canals surrounding Jennings. Most of the bodies were so badly decomposed that their cause of death was hard to determine, although it was found that two of the eight women had their throats slit, while the remaining six are thought to have been asphyxiated. There have been multiple suspects in the case over the years, and while at first a serial killer was suspected to be the likely culprit, it seems more apparent now to the general public and the journalists who've investigated these cases that several different killers are more likely, although law enforcement has not entirely ruled out the serial killer angle. The case of the Jeff Davis Eight is infamous for the lack of professionalism conducted in the investigation. Missteps and blunders by the sheriff's office has led to lost and missing evidence and several failed charges on the case. Loretta Lewis was the first victim of the Jennings Eight. She was found in a river by a fisherman on May 20th, 2005 and was only 28 years old. After this, a steady stream of women started turning up murdered in the area. Ernstine Marie Daniels Patterson, 30, was the next victim, followed by Kristen Gary Lopez, Whitney Dubois, Laconia Muggy Brown, Crystal Zeno, and Brittany Gary, who was just 17. The eighth and final victims in the slayings was 26-year-old Nicole Gilroy, found just off of Interstate 10 in 2009. One of the most interesting puzzle pieces in the Jennings Eight case is that most of the victims knew each other in some way. Kristen and Brittany were cousins, whilst Brittany had also lived with Crystal as roommates shortly before her murder. What they all had in common was poverty and a history of drugs and sex work, and hidden from the public for a long time was that the girls all worked as informants for the police, providing information on the local drug trade. They also often gave authorities details on the other Jeff Davis eight victims before they wound up dead themselves. In December of 2008, a task force of 14 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies was created, and they initially began searching for a serial killer. Although, as was mentioned earlier, this theory did somewhat eventually take a back seat. An $8,000 reward was created for any information that would lead to the cases being solved. One startling aspect of the case is that the police's own witnesses named local law enforcement members as suspects, and even the families of victims believe local police had a hand in the deaths of their daughters and sisters. Ethan Brown, an investigative journalist, made a deep dive into this complex and unsettling case. With the exception of Ernstine Patterson, every one of the women was linked with a 63-year-old oil rig worker turned strip club owner named Frankie Richard, who admitted to using drugs with and sleeping with most of the women. Richard was actually charged with the murder of Kristen Gary Lopez, but the charges were dropped due to conflicting witness statements and the mishandling of a key piece of physical evidence. It is suspected that street hustlers with connections to Richards were involved in the deaths of some of the women. Later, two other men named Byron Chad Jones and Lawrence Nixon, who was the cousin of Laconia Brown, 
were charged briefly with the murder of Ernstine Patterson, but the sheriff's office did not test the alleged crime scene until 15 months after the murder, and it quote, failed to demonstrate the presence of blood, and so the case collapsed as a consequence. Laconia had been interrogated about the murder of Ernstine, and one witness claims that Laconia had actually seen the body of Loretta, the first murder victim, before the fisherman found it and called it in. Then, in 2006, Lopez was interviewed about Loretta's murder. Lopez's mother, who spoke to Ethan Brown in the detailed article he wrote about the Jeff Davis 8, said, quote, "'She knew what was going on. They were scared, them girls. I think she knew about it and was too scared to say.'" It seems apparent that those questioned in high-profile homicides then turning up dead themselves should have raised red flags to the task force handling the Jennings 8 cases. So why wasn't this investigated further? Between the claims that local law enforcement members were involved, the family's belief that this was the case, and the known corrupt and flexible police force in the area, it seems that there's little doubt that authorities were involved in these killings. Since the 1990s to 2014, there are 20 unsolved homicides in the Jeff Davis Parish area. This is an unsettlingly low clearance rate inside of a high murder area. The Jennings Police Department and Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff's Office touts, quote, patterns and practices of unconstitutional conduct and seem to be unable to police themselves, often engaging in criminal acts that victimize rather than protect the citizens in their charge. At the end of 2008, a prostitute in the area warned the investigative task force that Nicole Gilroy might be the next victim. Nicole had a long rap sheet, with the majority of her charges having been dropped as the DA was unwilling to pursue them. Many snitches for police have their charges dropped like this in exchange for off-the-record cooperation, so it seems likely that although the sheriff refused to comment on whether the girls worked as informants for the police, they did indeed do this. Nicole's mother called her paranoid, saying, quote, it got to the point where she did not want to go anywhere by herself, and quote, she used to tell us all the time that it was police killing the girls. Nicole told her mother she wouldn't be around for her 27th birthday and placed her four kids in the care of relatives. Task force witnesses say of Nicole in her final days, quote, she was scared of someone, and quote, she knew who killed the girls. Coincidentally, Ernstine's father was one of the last people to see Nicole alive. It is not an isolated incident in this case that relatives have claimed the women told them that law enforcement was to blame for the murders. In fact, it seems almost common knowledge among those who were close to the Jennings 8. In 2007, a sergeant on the police force got word that two women in prison at the city jail wanted to shed some light on the unsolved homicides, which were carried out by, quote, high-ranking police officers. He taped the women as they told him highly specific details about the murders of Whitney and Kristen, and, allegedly, police covered up Frankie Richards' role in at least one of their deaths. The murders of the Jeff Davis 8 remain unsolved to this day. The complex, intertwined cases carry many shocking and disturbing coincidences. Far too many for one to think that they are just coincidences. 
There is in fact too much information for us to be able to go through every detail, but one thing remains clear. There is something deeply disturbing going on in the Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff's Office. But at least for the moment, the murders of the Jeff Davis Eight will remain unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for more real life cold cases, please check out the Cold Case Detectives podcast. Thank you for watching, stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.